This is the Darkest Page Podcast. The old man wakes me, half lit by a kerosene lamp, face divided into terror and mystery, lawn halved by a cold November moon. From the bedroom window I watched him dig the earth with a silver spade, opening a gaping wound in the earth's skin. Three weeks ago he moved boxes into what was the Connors' house. The Connors had a dog named Mackie. A six-year-old boy called James. A rope swing and playhouse. The old man has a rusted truck, busted grill. A dream catcher hanging from the rearview mirror. He dragged his life into the dead house, while Debussy slowed the world around me to a crawl. I moved the curtain back a little and note a long shadow, warped and twisted, sprawling over his garden. He bends to dig and his shadow mutates into a mythological creature, Hydra, Medusa, Minotaur. When he stands to wipe his brow, out it stretches, reaching out to touch the wooden fence that divides our gardens. The day after he moved in, I passed by his house. A deadbolt secured his front door, a thick bicycle chain coiled around the gate. He erected a sign that said, no trespassing. I watched him carry into the basement a hammer, a ratchet, a saw and grinder. For four nights he banged the floors, tightened bolts, sawed wood and grinded doors. I heard him wail and argue, screech and holler. I turned on the lights to the patio and opened the kitchen door. I wrapped my arms tight around a naked chest and look over the fence. From his neck hangs a silver skull held by a black lace, his boots dusted with soil, his overalls slashed with dark stains. On the news earlier today they spoke about a local girl called Rebecca. She went to swim practice and never returned. The week before a young boy was out catching sickleback from in Redwood Pond. The police found only his rod and half his shirt hanging from a naked briar. Pretty lake to be digging, I say. The shovel buries its head in the ground, ashamed. I ask, what are you digging for so late? The old man removes the lamp from the branch of a sickly sycamore, its flame casting a flat, lifeless light across sunken eyes. Holding the lamp at arm's length, he says, Off to find me the devil. A few days ago, the police found traces of blood, and a severed hand along the back road leading out to Redwood. When the Connors left, and the old man moved in, three dogs went missing. Mrs Edgecombe's prize azaleas were set on fire, and her lawn covered in paint stripper. The grass died in letters, each one spelling out the word, Sinner.
the devil, I ask. Yup, he says. You think the devil lives in your garden? He throws me a disdainful look and says, You think I'm stupid? I don't know you well enough to make that assumption. You don't know me at all, boy. I'm about to go back in the house when I hear him say, I'm digging to his home. I'm digging to hell. After the cremation of Mrs. Edgecombe's prize flower collection, a curfew was placed on every kid in the neighbourhood. Mr. Butterworth, who owns the local greengrocers, held a neighbourhood meeting. Three shifts were agreed upon, morning, afternoon and night, rotating on a daily basis. Every second Wednesday, I walked the streets in the afternoon looking for any suspicious looking people. I questioned strangers and told the other kids to stay away from Redwood Pond. Every second Wednesday I passed by the old man's house at least five times. What makes you think hell exists below your garden? I ask him. He puts the lamp back on the bench, spits a brown ball of phlegm into the ditch and says, It's down, ain't it? Where the fuck do you expect it to be? He had a point. I offer my hand over the fence and tell him my name. When he picks up the shovel and begins hacking at the earth again, I draw back and ask him his name. Without stopping, he asks, Did they send you? I shrug and ask, Who are they? The fat greengrocer? The widow with the flowers? The neighbours? No, I tell him. I live next door and thought it would be high time I introduced myself. I know where you live and who you are, he says. Not that I care. The paperboy and postman? They never have any deliveries for his house. Birds stay off his lawn. If there's heavy rainfall, his garden and drive remain dry as bone. He digs the earth and I look over to his house. The windows are black as silt. The bricks are deep red colour. Blood coloured. From the corner of my eye, a dim yellowy light illuminates a room on the upper floor. There stands a figure, blurred by lace netting. I turn back and ask, Your wife? He stops digging and looks to the house. Turning back, he pulls out an old pocket watch from his waistband, checks it against the lamp and says, It's time to eat. He picks up his shovel and walks back to the house. I stay a couple of minutes watching the shadow in the window, watching to see if it moves. I feel the figure's eyes on me, watching me with the same curiosity. A minute later, a hand is upon its shoulder, pulling it back into the shadow. The light dies. The house is thrown into blackness. The next day, the hole is bigger, at least four feet deep and the same across. The old man is nowhere to be seen. I tell Mr. Butterworth, and we agree to meet at my place later that night so he can witness the digging for himself. From eight till late we wait with breath fogging my pain and silences that pin you to the ceiling. I tell Mr. Butworth about the figure in the window, the noises next door, the banging, the tightening, the sawing and the grinding. I tell Mr. Butworth about the wailing, the screeching and the moaning, but around us we hear nothing more than our breath and the hint of uncertainty lingering on our lips. When the old man moved into our neighbourhood, winds grew restless. Lifting leaves from trees not native to our region and carrying newspapers we never read. One Wednesday, I returned from my watch to find the front page of a tabloid caught flapping in a lavender bush near my front door. 
The pages were spread flat. The headline, Killer Escapes Prison. The hole is bigger the next morning. Neither Mr. Butterworth nor I heard digging. In a dressing gown, I head out into the garden. I lean over the fence, looking down the hole. Hello? Can you hear me, mister? A splinter snags the dressing gown as I scale the fence and drop into his garden. No morning dew dampens my slippers. No flies buzz around my ears. It is a place lost, unwanted, and listless. Even the sycamore is failing, limbs trailing the ground, bark grayed and cyanotic. I lean over the edge of the hole. Below is a vast pit of nothingness. The sides descend to a perfect O-shape, black like that of an opera singer's mouth. The house. All the windows on the bottom floor are clad in newspaper. The upper set covered in net curtains. I knock on the back door, peer through the gaps in the newspaper. Nothing. Beside a small hedge sits a coiled-up piece of rope. I take one end and wrap it round the sycamore, throw the other down the hole. I test its strength and lower myself down. The earth is damp, loamy. My slippers slip and slide against the walls. One falls from my foot and I don't hear it land. I descend, slowly. A small medallion of light hovers above me, of life, my life. The rope, it keeps giving and the medallion of light reduces to the size of a paracetamol. When I showed Mr. Butterworth the newspaper article about the escaped killer, he rang the local police station. Mr. Butterworth wanted to know the killer's name, his age, and what he looked like. He wanted to know if the killer had anything to do with the severed hand and the missing children. Cold, wet earth covers my naked foot as I arrive at ground level. Small steps. I reach out and touch a wall fashioned from what feels like snail flesh. Tracing my hand along its surface, sludge gathers between trembling fingers. I reach a small lip. Directly below is a passageway. For the first time since entering the hole, I am able to see a warm light glowing in the distance. As the police officer told Mr. Butworth the details of the killer, I saw his chubby hand grip tight the phone's handset. He never said thanks or goodbye to the officer. He just placed the handset back down and told me to never mention the newspaper to anyone I knew. And with that, he left. On my knees and hands crawling through filth and mire, muck and grunge, formed a million years ago. Water drips on my face in my eyes, blurring the light ahead. With head down, my mind wanders to times when there was sunshine and, and the hint of honeysuckle on the breeze. The passageway comes to an end and I arrive within a room with bare wood floors, walls stripped down to plaster and brick. In the far corner is a table, home to a small bedside lamp. The day after the conversation with the police officer, Mr. Butterworth's shop didn't open. The sign outside said, Due to unforeseen circumstances, the shop will be closed until further notice. Sorry for any inconvenience. I stand and stretch. The room smells of morning breath and burnt hair. The light flickers once, twice and three times before gaining rhythm again. 
There are no doors. Only a window. Mrs Edgecombe's funeral. The coroner's report said she had suffered extensive internal bleeding. Mr Butchworth knew pretty much everyone in our town, so he spoke with the mortician at the local hospital. He confirmed what the coroner had documented, but added there had been no physical damage to Mrs Edgecombe's body. No bruising, cuts or burst capillaries. The mortician told Mr Butchworth it was as if she had been beaten to death from within. Before Mr Butchworth left my house last night, he turned to me and asked where I lived before moving to the town. Ockham, I replied. There's a prison in Ockham, he said. The same one the killer escaped from. The room I find myself in has a window, the pane covered in net curtains. I look out to the garden. It's dark and I realise it's no longer day. How long did it take me to reach the end of the hole? I squint, and in the darkness lit by a kerosene lamp is a face divided into terror and mystery, a lawn halved by a cold November moon. On one side of the fence is the old man digging. On the other side a man stares up at me, his arms wrapped round a naked chest. As the old man reaches for the watch in his pocket, my breath turns rapid and sour. The air around me turns fetid and warm. The kerosene lamp is removed from the tree and the man behind the fence remains still, looking towards me. I stare at him, that other version of me, and I remember what Mr Butterworth said to me. Have you ever done anything bad? Something you seek absolution for? My reply, hasn't everyone? I think about waving to the other version of me, but before I can I feel silken fingers tighten around my throat, pulling me back into the shadows. The light goes out, and all at once I am reminded of every sin I've committed. All at once, the old man whispers, this is for the children. Thank you for listening to the Darkest Page podcast. This has been The Hole by Craig Walwick. Kindly reproduced from his book, Human Tenderloins, available now at Amazon. This episode was made possible by the librarians of the Darkest Page, Alex Smith and Tonks, and by the kind generosity of Craig Walwick to reproduce his work. To see how you can support The Darkest Page, please visit patreon.com forward slash The Darkest Page. I have been your host, and I wish you pleasant dreams.